So last week we, we began a new series. We're going to be unpacking the, uh, the letter that, church, that, that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. And um, there's these several churches that took place uh, in the area of Asia Minor, um, modern day Turkey. And we're, we're calling this series The Gospel No Update Needed. And Paul, Paul establishes in the beginning that the gospel of grace, and, and what do I mean by that? For those who might be new to, um, new in your, on your journey of, of faith, when we talk about the gospel, we're, we're speaking of the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news, and grace, grace is really God's unmerited or God's earned, unearned favor, that's what grace is. It's when God gives you something that you do not deserve. How many are recipients of God's grace, right? And so the good news of the gospel is that God has given us reconciliation, not by our own works, not by our own merits, but by the good, gracious merit of God, the grace of God that we're saved. And Paul establishes in the beginning that the gospel of grace, the gospel that, that solely depends upon the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, it is our only means of salvation, that there is nothing we can do, there's nothing we can add to the work of Christ to ensure or greater secure our salvation. Christ has done it all. Isn't that good news? I thank God that my salvation isn't dependent on my ability to hold on to it because I would have lost it a long time ago. But, by upon, but upon the grace and goodness of, of Almighty God. And in the, in the churches of Galatia, there was a, there was a, a growing buffet, if you will, of, of spirituality, of spiritual teachings that were starting to emerge from false teachers that had kind of crept in. And they were teaching the church in Galatians because what ended up happening was, as the church was beginning to expand, which was primarily Jewish at one point, now the Gentiles are getting saved. And, and there was this this unawareness of many of the traditions that were taking place. There was some conflict as to how does this salvation get worked out in our lives. And so people were coming into the churches of Galatia and saying that in addition to the message that Paul taught, that, that, that salvation is by grace, it was an appeal to now start to mingle in much of the, the works of the law, namely circumcision. And it created tremendous conflict within the churches. And Paul is sounding the alarm to these churches. There is declaring that there needed to be an update to the message that Paul preached. That it was salvation by grace plus works. And Paul comes sounding the alarm in verse six. And he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning from him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's where we focused a lot of our attention on last week. And I want us to kind of return back. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me or you look above me or flip on through, whatever you do to get there. Galatians chapter one, let's meet over there somehow together. Galatians chapter one, we're going to pick up in verse 10, which is where we left off last week. Following this, this stern warning, from the Apostle Paul to, to not consider any other gospel than, than the one that he had preached to them, he asks this rhetorical question in verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Paul is making reference to a reality that existed within the Galatian churches that was, is actually a reality that we see in, in our churches today, and that is a desire to please everybody around them. Because there was conflict that was, that was emerging in the church, they decided let's try and present a gospel that is palatable to everybody, something that everybody will understand, so everybody will feel like it's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of compromise, right? You get a little bit of what you believe, a little bit about what you believe, and this kind of creates something that makes everybody happy. All the Jews, all the Gentiles, everybody's gonna be happy with this new gospel, everybody but God because the gospel that they were coming up with was a foreign gospel, it was a different gospel, it was a gospel that did not reconcile man back to God, and Paul is sounding the alarm and saying you cannot change this message. He says earlier on, even if an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel than what I've taught you, let let him be accursed. You see, the churches in Galatia were trying to appease, try to find something to satisfy. It had a desire to be accepted and culturally sensitive and pleasing to the people around them. They, they opted for a message that would please everybody but God. And now Paul holds himself up as an example by asking this rhetorical question and saying, listen, hey, am I seeking, to, with my message, am I seeking to please God or am I seeking to please men? Because if I'm, if I'm looking to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You see, the people in the churches were wanting to do something to add to their salvation. And Paul is sounding the alarm all throughout this epistle. You can't add anything to what Christ has already done. Any attempt at adding to what Christ has done is taking away from what Christ has done, is a declaration that the work of Christ on the cross was not sufficient. And it is a departure from truth, it is a departure from faith, it is a departure from the very Christ who saved them and called them. But you see, these churches, they wanted to, to do something, and you see, that's what man seeks to do. Man doesn't want to acknowledge that he's incapable of saving himself. Man wants to do it his way, right? Man wants to earn it. Man wants to accomplish it. He wants to win it. He wants to secure it. Ultimately, so he can, like the Pharisees, parade it out for everybody else so everybody could say, wow, look at what he or she has accomplished. And man always fights against this idea that man is incapable of saving himself. Listen, Christianity is the only belief system that puts all of our dependence for salvation upon somebody else, namely Jesus Christ. It is the only belief system that puts all of our dependence for salvation on somebody else. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
It doesn't make sense to them because they want to do, they want to achieve, they want to parade, they want to celebrate, they want to expose their, and, 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 and show everybody what they were able to accomplish. All the various religious systems in the world call upon men and women to do things to secure their own salvation. Whether that be their good works, whether it go on, be to go on some spiritual pilgrimage, whether that be meditations or adherence to a set form of sacraments, whether that be an attempt to, to keep the law or apply some of the law, in their, as in their case, none of these things suffice. All are insufficient and unable to justify a man before God. They are religious efforts. And see, what is religion? Religion is man's attempt to get to God. And it never satisfies. It never gets them there. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. Redemption is God's attempt to get to man. And it is the only way possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Religion tries to achieve and earn and win salvation. And it never does. So does that mean that we, we don't have to do any good deeds then? Does that mean that our, that our works are not necessary? Of course not. Christians are among the most benevolent people on the face of God's earth. But we don't do these things. We don't do good deeds to earn or secure our salvation. We do these things because of our salvation, right? They are not, the, they, these are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the pursuit of our salvation. So every Christian ought to have a healthy, generous amount of works that are evident in their life, not to earn their salvation, not in pursuit of their salvation, but as a result or a fruit of their salvation. And so if you're a Christian here today and you don't have any measure works in your life, one must wonder, have you come to faith in Christ? Our works don't save us. Our works demonstrate that we have been saved. Now we're going to talk more on that in the weeks ahead. Galatians has a lot to say about that subject. But, but every effort, every attempt at securing and presenting our own righteousness, it falls short. That's why Isaiah writes in, in chapter 64 of Isaiah's book, he says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all of, our all of our righteousness are like filthy rags before a holy God. The best that we can produce, the greatest of our efforts, the most zealous of our religious achievements, they approach, they appear to God as filthy rags. Because listen, every good work that we perform is tainted by sin. Think about it. What work can we possibly do that doesn't have some kind of sinful influence in it, whether it be just to, 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 be, to be noticed or some selfish motive? All of our good works, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags before our God. The attempt from man to cover his own sin is what was taking place, certainly in the book of Galatians. As we look at our world today, as, as we see so many religions out there and so many rules and regulations and ways in which man can apparently get to God, we recognize that it does not suffice. Man is still looking, still in search of those things. But it goes all the way back to the garden. This isn't new stuff. 
In Genesis chapter three, when man sinned against God, the first thing that Adam and Eve came to realize was they were naked. They ate of the tree that they were not to eat of, and the Bible says that when that happened, they became aware of their own nakedness. They realized they were exposed. And instead of running to God, they went to work. They realized they had a dilemma. They realized they were in a situation. And instead of going to God, they decided let's do something. And so now they go and they grab some fig leaves to cover up their problem, their nakedness. This was the first false religion that we see in the scriptures. It's man's attempt at covering his own sin. And what we have in this situation right here is, is really the first false religion in all of the scripture. Man trying to cover up his own sin. Look at it with me in Genesis chapter three and verse seven. After they had eaten of the fruit that they were not to eat, it says the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's very interesting. The first thing that they realized when they ate of the tree, when they crossed their line, when they became, they became aware of their own, when, when they sinned, they became aware of their own nakedness. They became very vulnerable. They became very exposed. They became very aware that a protection that they once had, they didn't have anymore. And so what they do is they devise their own system. They create a method by which they can solve their own problem in walks religion. And that's exactly what they do. Instead of going to God, they go to the fig trees and they get some leaves and they begin to cover their own nakedness. And you see, that's what religion does so many times. So many times people will fall or, or they come to a point of emptiness in their life or shallowness in their life and they turn to religion. How many times have you talked to Jesus about people and they say, I've given religion a try and it's just not my thing. You see, what, they do, what they're really saying is, I tried on some loincloths and I realized I was still naked. Because God never intended for us to try religion. Religion brings death, religion brings unfulfillment. Religion keeps us from God. Religion makes us think we're okay when we're really not okay. And so that's what they did. They devised their own system, their own religion. Maybe you're listening today, whether you're here in the room or watching online or on TV, and, and you think, you know what? I've given religion a try. I've, I've gone to church. I've been around this stuff. It just doesn't satisfy my, my suggestion to you. would be don't ever settle for religion. Religion will never satisfy. Religion is only the loincloth of figs, the fig leaves. God is the one who brings fulfillment and wholeness and reconciliation and relationship. And so they apply this system to their lives. They make these leaves and they, an attempt to cover their own shame. 
And then they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And you think that everything's okay at this point because you see their problem, their nakedness was covered. So why hide? Adam, where are you? We were naked and ashamed, so we hid ourselves. No, 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 you try to fix that already. So they hide themselves from God because they're ashamed. That's what sin does. Sin, sin brings shame. It's interesting. They were still ashamed because of their nakedness. Why? Because it didn't work. Those fig leaves weren't able to cover their own sin. That religious effort wasn't able to satisfy and bring them closer to God. In fact, it brought them further from God. And in the following verses, we learn that God, he pronounces judgment that will come as a result of their disobedience, but he doesn't leave them covered in those fig leaves, right? That man-made attempt at covering their own nakedness, something now, right, as early on in Genesis chapter three, something new is introduced into the garden, and it's death, it's sacrifice, it's blood, as God takes the skin of an animal and removes the fig leaves, and God covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve. The message, Adam and Eve, you will never be able to cover your own sin, but I will cover it for you. I will provide a sacrifice for you. It is a picture as early on as in chapter three of Genesis of one who would come and put on our skin. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he would come and he would shed his blood for you and for me and he would clothe us in his righteousness. Religion will never be able to accomplish what only the righteousness of Christ is able to accomplish. And so Christ clothes us in his righteousness, exposing the fact that our efforts are futile, but his solution is the only way possible. It's a gospel of grace. That is the gospel that Paul preached. A gospel of grace apart from works. A gospel that puts Christ at the center of our salvation and, and not human efforts. And as these churches in Galatia were getting their eyes off of Christ and onto their own works, their own religious attempts, their own incorporation of the law into this gospel message, Paul holds himself up as an example of how, our, how futile our efforts are to save ourselves By presenting his resume in these next number of verses, he, he attempts at demonstrating to them that there is no works possible that can ever satisfy or reconcile a man back to God, and he uses the, his, the best argument possible 
the argument of himself. One who pursued the law of God unlike anybody else. Paul's best argument for salvation by grace alone, apart from works of the law, his best argument is himself. Let's look again at our text, verse 10 of chapter one of Galatians. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is very significant, specifically because they were trying to bring into question the authority of Paul as an apostle. Because if they could bring into question the authority of Paul, then they could discredit the teachings of Paul. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, this thing, this gospel that I've taught you, it wasn't a result of something that I I picked up in some chat room somewhere, right? Nobody ever taught me this. This this wasn't the result of of a conversation that I had even with the apostles. I didn't regurgitate some theology that I heard from men. I didn't seek this. I didn't learn this. I didn't acquire this. I didn't even make this up. I received this through direct revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ. This is coming from God himself. And now it's as if he's about to say, I didn't expect this. Again, he's holding himself up as an example. I didn't expect this, or I didn't even look for this. In fact, in fact, I had my own plan of salvation. As a Pharisee, I was adhering to the works of the law, and I was good at it. I was consistent. I shined above everybody else as a Pharisee. I was doing really well with it. Look what he says in verse 13. For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That was something that was actually recognized as a good thing amongst the Pharisees. They were bringing, in their minds, they were purifying God's people. He said, you've heard about me, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of of those of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And so what Paul is saying here is, is listen, I, I get it, I was sold out for what I believed. I wasn't like some armchair quarterback, right? I wasn't a sideline saint where, you know, hoping everybody would get the job done. I was right in there. I was the guy persecuting the church. I was the one who wasted the church. My religious zeal far exceeded anybody else. I advanced like nobody else in all of Judaism, which in his ignorance, was his attempt to get to God. That was his religious effort. Those were his religious attempts. To these churches that were returning back to the law, Paul holds himself up as an example and says, listen, I've been there, I've done that better than anybody else. What you're pursuing, I already arrived at and found it's just a mirage. It's just empty religion that doesn't satisfy. Look what he says, verse 15. But when he 
who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. I love that. All of these efforts, all of these attempts, all of this zeal, all of this, this, this fulfilling of the law, all of this trying to get right with God, he says it wasn't until God was pleased to reveal his son to me. He says, look, he says, God set me apart before I was born and called me into his grace. I love that. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, Cephas, and remained with him for 15 days, but, but none, saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you, he says, before God, I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They are only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. What Paul is saying to those who were looking back at the law in an attempt to complete their salvation, he's saying, I've already arrived at where you're looking to go, and that message, that pathway, doesn't get you to the promised land. That method, that, those means that you're looking to does not reconcile man back to God. It is in the midst of all those things that God, despite me, met me right where I was. It wasn't until that day when he set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. He'll say to the church at Ephesus that you were saved and called before the foundations of the world. Try and reconcile that in your own thinking and timelines. What Paul is saying to the church is that you've already received salvation by grace through faith. Why would you seek to add anything to a completed work and therefore forfeit that as a completed work? To add anything to that gospel changes the very essence of what it is. This is very important because I know so many Christians who, who come to faith in Christ, they hear the gospel of grace. Maybe they're at their rock bottom when they come to faith, maybe that was you. Why does that happen? I think sometimes people just keep trying to find anything possible to satisfy when they realize that there's nothing left. They hit rock bottom only to realize that God is there. And there's so many people that, that come to faith in that point. They realize that, it's, that their salvation is by the grace of God, that it wasn't something they deserved, but then they fail to remember that it's the grace of God and not their good works that will keep them. Not that they ever say that, but it's revealed oftentimes when, when a Christian fails in a certain area and they think that no, God no longer loves them. Have you been down that journey? 
Everything was going well, right? You're, one day you're like, you're, you're spiritually dead. You're as bad off as you possibly can be. And Jesus steps in and gives you the gift of eternal life, not because you deserve it, not because you're cute, not because of any other reason, but then by the grace and, God, and loving mercy of God. And he extends himself to you. And then he picks you up from where you are. And he puts you on this spiritual journey, this trajectory of life of where you are now, becoming more and more like Christ. And you have experiences that are great and you have experiences that are not so great. And you have moments of amazing success and you have moments of failure. And I have met so many Christians that oftentimes they will look back at their life and they'll see the ups and downs of their life and they will identify themselves by how faithful they have been to maintain the good works. Failing to remember that their standing before God does not change based on how well you're able to uphold the characteristics of the faith. Now that's not to suggest for one minute that we ought to make light of sin or anything like that. But I've seen too many Christians check themselves out because they started off strong but they got sidetracked and they figure, well, God's not happy with me anymore. See, when I'm doing good, God loves me. And when I'm not doing good, God doesn't love me. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And there's so many Christians that I know put themselves through the torture of that. And you see, that's what was going on in the church at Galatia. Paul's saying, no, 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 listen, he loves you. Period. If you drop the ball, go to God. Find forgiveness in Christ. That's why he came. Pick yourself up and walk out as a child of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because if you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you're not going to take that off. You'll stand clothed. He is, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. But so many times we allow our emotions to ride the roller coaster of our obedience and we start to define ourselves by our good works and not by our standing before God. And that's what was going on in Galatia. Galatia was mixing in the law, the works, the efforts. And Paul paints the picture of himself, using himself as an example. He paints a picture of himself at his worst possible moment. He defines himself as one who is persecuting the church of God, violently seeking to destroy it, using his own words. Luke gives us a snapshot of the pre-converted Saul that we read about in, in, in the book of Acts. Prior to Paul coming to faith, he was known as Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. And Acts chapter eight gives us an interesting idea of what Saul was really like. It's after the first martyr, Stephen, is killed for his faith with the approval of, the, of, of, of Saul of Tarsus. Luke writes, and Saul approved of, this, of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Look, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the great apostle Paul. And you see Paul at his worst possible moment following this experience where he just nodded to the execution of Stephen, dragging out men and women out of their, their homes, committing them to prison, and now he's got his sights set for Damascus. He's gonna head out to Damascus to continue to further his cause of ridding the earth of the church, but on the way to Damascus, he comes face to face with Jesus Christ, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul comes face to face with the God who called him at birth. And God sends him on a trajectory of preaching that same gospel that he tried to rid the world of. And he finds faith in Christ. He's saved by grace, by his good works. (laughs) Hope not. (laughs) Hope not. He was at the worst, most vile, decadent place. And likewise, has that been your story? At my worst possible moment, God stepped into my life. When I cared not about God, when I cared only for myself and my own pleasures, when I thought nothing about ignoring all that he told me to do. On my way to a bar with a beer in my hand and a cigarette in the other, God met me on November 11th, 1989. My worst possible state. And God said, you're mine. And listen, if you'll take me then, I'd like to think I cleaned myself up a little bit since then, He's accepted you at your worst possible state. He'll accept you now. But not because you deserve it, but because Christ's righteousness has been yours. The letter to Galatians, while stern and clear, is a message of grace. It's a message of hope. It's a message to the wayward who, who can never muster up enough righteousness on his own to stand before God, that God provides for you that which you can never provide for yourself. Not on your merits, but on the merits of Christ. So three great questions to ask yourself in response to these truths. Number one, do I often see myself through the lens of my works? or through the lens of the works of Christ. How do you see yourself? We can get so critical of ourselves. We can put the big L right on our forehead and call, you know, we can be our worst enemy. Do you see yourself through the lens of your own works? Because the enemy would love for you to do that. Because if you only look at your own efforts, you're gonna disqualify yourself. We are not to look at ourselves through the lens of our own works. We are to look at ourselves through the lens of Christ's work on the cross for us. 
My past, your past does not define you. Jesus defines you. And so that's a great question to ask yourself. How, how do I see myself? You see, when you see yourself through the lens of your works, you're gonna see yourself having up and down and up and down and up. And you know what happens if you have enough of those? You throw up, right? Or at least you feel like you want to throw up. That's not what God has for you. See yourself as God sees you. Know who you are in Christ Jesus. Second question is, do I, do I judge myself guilty when Christ has declared me innocent? You see, to not walk in that innocence, to not walk in that righteousness, ultimately what we're saying is, thank you, but that's just not enough. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being my sacrifice. Thank you for shedding my blood, your blood for me, but it's just not enough. I must do. Don't judge yourself guilty when Jesus said, it is finished. I write these things, John says, that you might not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only Jesus can provide that for us, not works. Do I try and cover, third question, do I try and cover my own sins? Or do I run to God knowing that forgiveness is available because of what Christ did for me? Does my, here's a better, no, better, no, better way of saying it. Does my failure cause me to run to God or from God? The enemy wants you to run from God. He wants you to hide yourself and stay in shame and disconnected and, and not walking in what God has for you. Don't let your sin cause you to run from God. Call, allow your sin to run, have you run to God. Knowing that God's not surprised by it, by the way. That's why Christ came. Because if we were able to do this thing called life without any sin, Jesus would have never came. Why bother? Just say, he'd say, just obey. But we're not capable of that. And so he steps in and he's our substitute. And he accomplishes what, in us what we cannot do ourselves. A proper understanding, as I close up, of why you stand on solid ground before God will give you the confidence to come boldly to the, grace of, to the throne of God. That's the appeal, to come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly. My, my kids love to just barge right in my office, especially when they were younger. Just barge, like they, like they own the place, right? I have some people walk in, they're like, they, 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 they think it's like the inner sanctum. My office is really not. Um, but it's kind of like, like they're in the principal's office, like they get all night. It's like, you know, it's just the place where I work. But, but not my kids. My kids are like, just walk in like they own the place. Oh, snacks are here. I'm going to grab this. And you know, like they just put their feet up on it. And why? Because dad's there. And the scriptures call us, the writer of Hebrews calls us to, to come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? How can you do that? Not by my works. Not by my attitudes. Not by my motives. Solely because of what Christ has done. I can come because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I get welcomed by a good, 
good Father who loves me. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the invitation to come and come boldly. We thank you for the grace of God that is there for us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning, maybe you're here today and this is just just what you needed to hear today. Maybe you need to be set free on Memorial Day of the bondage and shame of sin that you've been carrying on. Can you just see yourself giving that to Jesus right now? Just in the quietness of your own heart, maybe there's some things you just said, you need to ask God, God, just would you forgive me of this? Not because I deserve it, but because Christ went to the cross for me. I ask that you forgive me my sins. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And something so beautiful about a clean slate that, that, that only Jesus can provide by, by the shedding of his blood. And walk out from this place with your head held high, your shoulders squared, knowing you're a child of almighty God who he loves and has set his affection on because of the merits of Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.